0: There's a better way to do this Let me show you a better way You don't have to be another face in the crowd Hi folks, this is Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, the things that we can all do to live a better life. Times get tough or even if they don't. Come to you once again from Arlington, Texas, today with episode five hundred and eighty-eight of the Survival Podcast. It is a Monday, January 17, thousand eleven. And since it's a Monday, you know what we're gonna be doing today. Taking your comments, commentary, questions, things you want me to comment on, all kinds of good stuff like that via email. If you want to send an email with something for me to take a look at and maybe answer a question for you on a show like this, please send it to Jack at the dot com. Again, Jack at TheSurvivalPodcast.com. Hold on to that email address. You're going to need it to try to win a book today. Signed autograph copy of Lights Out by David Crawford in just a few minutes. Before we get into your questions and commentary and before we give away that free book, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you and make sure the show is here for you five days a week, Monday through Friday. Sponsor of the day number one today is Emergency Essentials. Again, Emergency Essentials. One of the best places I can think of to buy long-term storage food. I mean, that's what they really specialize in. They have some really great other products as well, but when it comes to Mountain House, providing pantry, uh, long-term rations, uh, you know, grains and, uh, you name it, the stuff you're really going to put away for the long haul, Emergency Essentials is one of the premier places to get your supplies for stuff like that. Check them out, uh, again, Emergency Essentials. You'll find their banner on our website at the SurvivalPodcast.com. Next up today, Western Botanicals. Western Botanicals is absolutely my favorite source uh for finding herbals. Specifically whole herbs, if I want to do something on my own and I need something that I can't collect locally because either it's the wrong time of year or I just can't find it. You know, let's say I need cleavers or skull cap or something like that uh to make an ointment or a tincture or an extraction and uh have everything else I need. Well where am I gonna get skull cap? Well I can get it from Western Botanicals. I can also get my preparations pre-made there. I can get great advice and information there as well. Uh, Pick up the phone, give them a call. If you've got any questions, they will help you out. Again, Western Botanicals, you'll find their banner at survivalpodcast.com, like all of our sponsors. Uh, Next up today, we are doing a book giveaway today. I'm going to make it really easy for you today. Uh, We're giving away a signed copy of Lights Out by David Crawford. And uh, the way you'll play for that today is you'll just send me an email. Uh, do not go use the contact form on the site. It won't work. you got to send me a direct email, jackatthesurvivalpodcast.com. Name and shipping address in the email body. So if you win, we don't have to, try to track you down. We just ship your book out. Uh, and in the subject line, the code word today to win is the author's name. It's two words, David Crawford. Uh, Crawford is C-R-A-W-F-O-R-D. C-R-A-W-F-O-R-D. David Crawford in the subject line, your name and shipping address in the body of the email. Send that to com. One lucky winner will get an autographed signed copy of David's book. We'll be giving away another copy tomorrow and Wednesday. David announced that when he was on the show last week on Thursday. If you play the other two days, Thursday and Friday, and you haven't heard back yet, you still might have won. I'm going to do everybody that wins at once with this. We've got four different or five different folders going. So you won't find out whether you've won on any of these days or not until Wednesday. I'm also giving away each day two free memberships to the members support brigade. On Wednesday, the winners will be notified for all five days combined. Uh, next up, real quick, I want to let you guys know I am going to the uh bug out location uh tomorrow. I do have shows for you Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday already ready to go. Um, I also have today's show. I will try to do a Friday show for you before I leave. I've really been straining my voice. I did a lot of extra shows last week to make this happen, and uh, I may not be able to pull that off for you because actually, there's a uh, Tuesday show still has to be done. So I've got Wednesday. I've got actually Thursday show has to be done. So I've got to do two shows today. Um, and uh, one will be for Thursday. And if I if I've got it left in me, I'll do a Friday show. But you will have at least four shows this week. Um, last but not least, consider joining the Members Support Brigade. Uh, do that. You get exclusive content available only to members. You get discounts to lots of vendors. Still trying to get the discount codes renewed for high mowing seeds and for seeds of change. Uh, I expect them to do it, but they haven't done it yet. So I am out looking for some other companies to get you discounts on your seeds for spring planting. Um, also, real quick, remember to check out our gear shop. we got a lot of cool stuff there. The copper coins should start shipping, I think the end of this week, beginning of next week. So all of you guys that are waiting for your copper coins, know this. I'm waiting for mine too. Uh whenever something comes in the gear shop that I want, it doesn't come to me, it goes to the gear shop. When I want it, I pay retail for it just like you do, believe it or not. So I put my order in way back at you know at the beginning of December, and I'm waiting for my uh my roll of a hundred coins to show up as well. So anyway, with that, let's go ahead and get into the main topic of today's show. Let's take that first question. Um, this one comes from a guy named Noah. I say a guy, really a young man. Uh, Noah says, uh, Hi Jack, I am a 12-year-old guy. I started listening 12 years, 12 years ago. I started listening two years ago. I have a great family on board, as you would say. I would just like to know what kind of spring garden I should have. I live in California near Sacramento area. Thanks for the show. It really changed my short life. Uh, please read on air if possible. Thanks, Jack. Uh, and again, this comes from Noah in the Sacramento area. Well, you've got a great question, man, and uh, you know me, I won't talk to you differently because you're a kid, but you might get your points to get to the front of the line to get on the show, uh, but you're going to get the same answer from me. Um, that's what I do, man. I respect kids as much as I respect adults. And uh, it's a great question. I think a lot of people can benefit from it. I've done a lot on gardening. If you've been listening to years, you know a lot of my philosophies on gardening. But the first garden... There's a couple things I want you to be prepared for. One, be prepared to fail. Uh, you won't fail with everything you do. You will definitely fail with some of the things you do. Uh, this was the fifth year that I gardened at this location here uh, in Texas, and I had failures this year. Now I had predictable failures. I had the ongoing problem with tomato blight, and I had the evil, and I call them evil, squash vine borers, Uh, both of which I anticipated and and actually had more success this year combating than in previous years. But my point is, I've been doing this my whole life. I've been doing it at this location five years, and I've had some failures. So definitely in your first year, you're going to have some failures. Focus on building your soil and setting up your system in your first year. So that means defining where your beds are going to go, how are you going to manage your beds, are they going to be in ground, are they going to be raised, if you're going to do raised beds, are they just going to be raised, are you going to use edging, start planning that out. Look for the sunny areas where you're going to be able to get good sunshine for the duration and uh, focus on the plan, the layout, how you're going to have your irrigation schedule set up, are you going to do it manually, or are you going to have drip irrigation, what are you going to do to make sure your plants get watered. Um, in the spring and the winter in Sacramento, you probably won't have to water a lot. In the summer and the fall, you're probably going to have to do quite a bit of watering. Now, the good news. You live in one of the greatest locations in the United States for gardening. Uh, you're in zone 9. That means you can pretty much grow anything you want. You'll get the occasional frost and minor freeze, but it's very, very moderate. So you can grow things that are perennials that will keep coming back that some of us here will struggle with, like artichokes. I mean, it would be a great thing that you look at as putting some artichokes in. Uh, and once they start growing, you know, they'll come back year after year and produce artichokes for you. But I'll also tell you this. If you don't like artichokes, don't grow artichokes unless you have somebody you can barter with or something like that. Really focus on growing the things that you like to eat. So ask yourself, no, what do I like? And if you like peppers, grow peppers. If you like tomatoes, you know, grow tomatoes with some caveats. It makes a lot of sense to grow things you can't go down to the supermarket and buy, especially if you're in a suburban lot. And uh, you have limited space. So maybe instead of growing the standard green bell peppers, you grow some type of a frying pepper or so. All I'm saying is kind of think outside. You grow tomatoes, maybe you grow some type of an heirloom or something like that. Look for things that are not easily acquired at your local market, even you know, especially not easily acquired organic or locally grown. Since you live in an area where so many great things are grown, that makes you think a little bit deeper, but what are you going to grow? For spring... Focus on your cool weather crops, and in Sacramento, you can probably be putting this stuff in the ground um, right now. Um, things like lettuces and spinach and broccoli and uh, cauliflower and onion and 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 uh, chives and your cool weather herbs. You should be able to plant that stuff right now. Um, it makes a lot of sense, though, to get your plants hardened a little bit before you put them out there, if that's possible. Uh, A little bit of growth on them, a little bit of a root system on them. So you're going to do much better putting a a two-and-a-half to three-inch tall broccoli plant out into your cold ground, and it's kind of cool this time of year, than trying to put out you know, a tiny seedling or just put seed in the ground. The ground's a bit cold, even in Sacramento, for that right now. So good, hardy plants. First-year gardeners, there's nothing wrong with trying your hand at starting seeds. But if you get to the time where it's time to put your seedlings in the ground and your seedlings are kind of feeble and yellowy and not looking really good, pitch them or plant them elsewhere. Just throw them in the ground somewhere, see how they turn out. Go down to the nursery, buy some good, hardy, large, the biggest ones they have and the varieties you want to grow, healthiest plants you can get. Make sure you do it after all danger of frost. You That's coming soon for you, Noah. For other people, that might be later in the year. First-year gardeners, if you do that, you're going to get some good production out of your garden. It's not going to be the most cost-effective in the first year, but you're going to get the experience you need so that you can go into seed starting and things like that in the future. That's about the best I can do for you on a write-in you know, Monday-type show with a a short answer. Uh, But great question, Noah. Hopefully that helps you. Check out some of my other gardening uh, episodes, Noah, and see if there's some other ideas there you have. If you want to write me back and ask something specific, please do. I'll try to get that on the air for you as well. Uh, Let's go ahead and take another one. Well, here's a tough one, and let's, uh, let's see what I can do with it. Uh, this comes from Michelle. Michelle says, Dear Jack, thank you so much for all your wonderful insights on in the world around us. I thoroughly enjoy listening to your podcast on a daily basis. However, I'm concerned about how to eventually achieve self-sufficient lifestyle as a college student. Just to give you some background about myself, I'm a 21-year-old honors student majoring in political science and journalism uh, with a 3.75 GPA. Good for you. Um, although I'm not like the lazy... Ask Cloud students you often refer to in your podcast. I will be doomed to renting an apartment and paying several thousands of dollars in college debt when I graduate. With these issues in mind, is it too early for me to formulate a plan on how to obtain my own property so I will not sacrifice all of my money to something that is not mine for the rest of my life? If not, how can I plan to practice the ideals of homesteading survivalism in order to become independent? with the reality of being young, not yet, started, not yet started on a career, and still partially dependent upon financial aid. Any advice would be greatly appreciated. Again, I truly love your podcast, but I feel it's primarily addressed as an audience comprised of individuals who have a fair amount of work experience and are settled with families or at least financially supported spouses. Thus, I feel as though I am the odd man out because of my current stage in life, though I am slowly saving money and not being a slave to consumerism. I feel hopeless and lost because of the combination of debt and discouraging outlook of job security for my age group. Thank you for your time. I look forward to hearing from you, Michelle. Alright, let's start out with the whole concept of you being the odd man out. I guarantee you, I will lay you a million to one odds on any bet you wanted to give me that the majority of people who are 30 and 40 and 50ish years old, that whole edge of the baby boomer, back to the tweener generation that I'm part of, that whole thing, you know, I'm just about to turn 40 in a year from now. Um, All of those people that are listening to this show and and getting into this lifestyle and understanding this, wish to God that they knew and heard the things that are on this show and from the communities that that they're a part of now, not just the survival podcast with other forums, other email lists, All the stuff that we're talking about with homesteading and modern survivalism, being prepared, staying out of debt, they wish when they were your age they had access to this information. So it's not that you're the odd man out. It's that you're just at a different point that you often hear me talk about because I talk more about the journey and the destination than the beginning of the journey. right? So you're going to college, so there's certain things that come with that that are sacrificial. You're not generally going to own a home and go to college at the same time, unless you're in the middle of a career, going part time at night, you have an employer, you know that type of thing. You're you're down the road anyway. Uh, 21, 22 years old, very few 22 year olds in or outside of college own a house. This is why they tell you, and and if you're right for college, and if you're carrying almost a four, you know, close to a 4.0 GPA, you're probably right for college. Um, this is why they tell you go as soon as you get out of school. When you can afford these sacrifices, so don't feel bad that you're renting while you're in college. If you told me you were trying to buy a house and struggling financially and going deeper in debt so you could own a house and go to college, the first thing I'd tell you: is sell the house and get out of it. So there's nothing wrong with what you're doing. So hopefully, first of all, you get that um, you're just exactly where you're supposed to be at this point. Now I'm going to tell you some things that may be hard to hear, as well. Though you have a you're 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 gunning for a degree. In political science and journalism, you need then, if you're going to stay the course with this, you need to have, have set up a blog yesterday. So if you haven't done it yesterday, do it today. You need to set up a real blog with a real URL, right? Not not somebody at blogspot.com or wordpress. You need to set up a hosted solution. If you need help, you get someone. You're going to college. Just Tons of people around there could help you install a WordPress blog, tell you how to get your own domain and things like that. And you need to start building up a clientele, a readership now. You really needed to do this two years ago. You're going into a world where journalism is just changing massively, and I don't know what political science is going to do for you. I really don't. Um, I would almost tell you, unless you're married to this idea, really look at your future, your outlook. If you want to have a normal career, you don't want to be somewhat self-employed. Maybe you're not in the right major. I don't know. That's your own choice. But if you're going to do this, and here's why, you're eventually going to graduate with a degree in journalism and political science. Not a lot of things to do with the political science degree without the journalism degree, which is why I'm glad you got the double major going on. Then you're going to go out to a publication, either a newspaper, one of the online big online publications that's doing right. You're going to hand them a resume. You're going to try to get a job in a sea of people out there trying to do the same thing. Tons of people carrying pieces of paper that said they went to school. And you're going to have someone that's a jerk on some levels, like me, because jerks like me get to be in charge. Sooner or later, jerks always move up the chain because we don't waste time with bullshit and we get straight to the point, so I'm going to, at some point, when you're like, well, I did this, and I was in this activity, and whatever, I'm going to go, so, i tell you what, here's the deal, Michelle, I've got, uh, I've got about 20 people right now I'm interviewing for this position, why should I hire you and not them? And let me tell you the answers that won't work. Because I work really hard, because I'm dedicated, because I really want the opportunity. Because if you give me the opportunity, I'm going to prove to you that I'm worth it. And every other version of that thereof is white noise to me. I'm talking to you straight up like an employer, like a guy used to be. They used to interview people all the time. You know what would get my attention, though? Well, because, sir, I already maintain a blog with 50,000 readers, And if I come here and start working for you, my readers are going to read the stuff that we put out. And I can help you attract 50,000 new people to your publication. That answer, that answer means something to me. That answer means eyeballs and money. And that means this person, with no help, did this on their own. If I put my backing and my machine behind them, and they're gonna bring something to the table from day one. I'm gonna back them. So if you're gonna do that, so does this is this to tell you how to go out and buy a house tomorrow? No, because you you've committed to getting a degree. So buying a house tomorrow is not the thing to do. If you have now, here's the other side is if you have that blog with fifty thousand readers, two years, three years from now, when you're ready to graduate, you may not want to go work for anybody. You may build that up to a point where it's producing cash flow for you and you may be able to go out and buy yourself your little homestead and as long as you can get an internet connection, live wherever the hell you want. This is called having options. In the meantime, this is what you do in the meantime. Take as little student loan debt on as you possibly can. Get a job delivering pizzas. Work 18 hours a day. Do whatever you have to do. Carry one course lighter and stay in school six months longer. But save money while you're in school. If you can save $200 a month while you're in school, that's a home run. A year? 2400 bucks. I know, that's not a lot of money toward buying a house. But if you can pull that off while you're in school, when you get out, when you get out, and you get a job with real income, and you don't have school pulling the money away, you will not believe how much money you will be able to save. Because you will set your life on that course early. And that's the big mistake people make. Most people go through school with almost no sacrifice at all. They take seven years to get a four-year degree, They ride student loan debt all the way through it. They never have to struggle because they just borrow more money, get more money from home, and maybe work some little pissant job for an hour or two a day. And as long as they can buy pizza and stay in the dorm, they're okay. Or live at home. And Then they get out, and then when they do get that first job, let's say they get lucky and they get a good paying job. And they're making some decent money with it. What do they start doing? They start blowing it because they've never had to sacrifice. You need to accept the sacrifice you've chosen now, be, be grateful for it and maximize it. And let's say you say, well, I've done everything I can. I can't save a hundred or two hundred dollars a month. I can save a hundred home run, fifty bucks. I don't care what it is. If you as a college student working your ass off can minimize the student loan debt and, and pay for some of your own education so you're not doing it funding at hundred percent from loans and you can come at the end of each month and go, there's fifty bucks in a jar. Your life is set for the future by the time you come out you'll have kind of gone through a crucible. And you'll be able to buy whatever you want in the future if you take the advice I'm giving you now. That's the advice I have for you. It's not about trying to shortcut it. It's about time trying to maximize the time during the sacrifice. You're not going to own a house right now. Don't worry about homesteading right now other than educating yourself about it. But I'll tell you this. You're putting a lot of sacrifice into this career. Make sure it's your passion. Make sure it's what you really love. Make sure that when you come out with that degree, you have a degree in something you absolutely are passionate about, or it's not worth the sacrifice. Let's go ahead and take another one. Here's an interesting one, kind of politi- politics, kind of economics, but remember, I do whatever you guys send in. Uh, this comes from Scotty. Scotty says, I'm currently overseas and therefore not able to call. I want to ask your thoughts about the Fair Tax, fairtax.org. I've been listening to your show for about 30 episodes and love it. Thank you for the hard work you do, Semper Must be a Marine, and that must be why you are overseas. I'll back to you, Scotty. On the fair tax, I have mixed emotions about it. On one hand, it's better than what we have. The fair tax, for those of you that don't know is it is a sales tax, of, it's actually like 30-something percent, but effectively, they say it comes out to 23 percent because it would eliminate income and Social Security tax, and you only pay it on buying new items. So, if I were to sell you uh, my used car, it wouldn't uh, carry the national sales tax. It would only be first-time sales of new items at the point of final sale. So, there's no value-added tax in it. So, if I had a uh, tomato, uh, well, a tomato would be a good uh, example because it's food, so it would probably be exempt anyway because it's exempt from most uh, uh, state sales taxes. Let's say I, I built um, a, a, a product at my home. I built a prefabricated greenhouse from, from scratch, and I set it out as a kit. And uh, I sold that to a warehouse who sold it to a reseller who sold it to you. The only time the tax would be paid is when you bought it at the end of the chain. If I sold it directly to you, you would pay the tax. But the end consumer is the only one that pays the tax. This eliminates the income tax and Social Security taxes 100% of the way. And um, that's good because it encourages people to save. And it it puts more money in the hands of the people. So they decide whether or not they pay the tax in the first place because I don't have to buy new items and I don't have to buy anything. I can choose what I buy. I can buy things that are tax exempt, and uh, I think there would probably be and be hard, hard to the federal government, but beautiful in my eyes. A giant black market would show up uh, with people dealing directly with each other as well, which would be another way to avoid taxation. So compared to the existing tax system, miles better. The people that won't like it, the like forty percent of Americans, and there's like they say it's fifty some percent, but in reality it's about forty percent that effectively pay like almost nothing at all. All they pay is Social Security, and uh, they only pay half of it because all of those people are employed or paid by the government or something, so they're only paying about six percent Social Security, seven percent Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, all that stuff. That's all they're paying. So now those people are going to share in paying the bills of the nation. That's not bad, but politically, it's difficult to overcome. My problem with it, it makes it extremely easy to raise taxes. Because all they do is say, you know, we need more money, let's raise it 1%. Oh, the deficit's bigger, let's raise it a half a percent. And they can slowly, incrementally, over time, raise the tax rate. The only way I would support the fair taxes, would have to come with a cap. It would have to come in and they would say, it's going to be this, and it's never going to be higher, or future Congresses can raise it by up to 1%, and that's it, that would require a constitutional amendment, because without an amendment, this Congress can't put a limit on the future Congress. It could be attempted, um, but it would be very difficult to be enforced. It would certainly, if they ever wanted to, be challenged by the Supreme Court, and probably overturned, because that is a, a, a limitation of government. This Congress can't limit the next Congress. Again, we would need a a specific constitutional amendment installing this tax and stating its cap. If we did it with a cap, basically when the government said, hey, we need more money, we'd say, hey, fix the problems. Or get out of the way and let the problems fix themselves. The big problem. It doesn't actually fix the real problem. See, everybody's worried about, well, the tax is this, tax is that. The problem's the debt. And the debt can't be repaid under the current system. If you have it, Watch the video that I put on the blog on Friday. You need to watch the video that I put on the blog on Friday. Please watch the video. Understand that under the current system, the only thing that's going to happen to our national debt is it will grow. And it will grow every single stinking year. And until we change the underlying system, any tax we pay is going to do one thing. Fund the Federal Reserve and interest on the debt and new debt. So, that's all we're doing right now. That's it. Please understand that. All we're doing is throwing our tax money into a hole and it goes away. The system's the problem. So, all of you guys that want to focus on the tax side, we need to fix the system, and then we can all pay less taxes by whatever means it was. If we disbanded the Federal Reserve, made our currency public, stopped living on on loan debt from other nations and from a private banking institution and fix the currency, we could eliminate the income tax a year from now. With the proper plan, maybe it would take two years, because we're in this system, we would have to decouple from it. But we could easily come up with a plan that would do that. No one in government has an interest in this. So please understand, when they say, we're going to cut taxes and spending, they're full of shit. They can't cut spending, because the interest on the debt is going to double in the next five years. Anything they cut will be offset by the interest on the interest on the debt alone. They're gonna cut taxes here and they're gonna increase them there. They can't cut taxes in any meaningful way because they're already running a deficit. A huge one. The only way to fix this is to stop the madness at the core of the system. That's too political to go into any deeper today, but please watch the video I put out last week called Monetary Myths and the Debt Ceiling. Uh let's go ahead and take another one. Here's an interesting question. Hi, Jack. I'm very concerned about inflation and economic collapse. I also don't like helping the Fed by using their paper or electronic transfers. At this point, we still have to use reserve notes as currency, with a few exceptions like AOCS. I wanted to keep my savings mostly in silver. Is there a place that I could quickly trade it for dollars in an emergency, i.e. a car breakdown? Thanks for the show, Dave. Dave, um, yes, there's thousands and thousands and thousands of them. Pick up your Yellow Pages. Or go use the online yellow pages, because very few of us actually have hard copy ones anymore. By the way, good emergency prep. When they send that giant phone book around to your door, don't throw it away. Keep it. And if the internet's down, you still have all that great information how to access it. Um, and look for coin shops and gold and silver uh, dealerships and pawn shops in your area. Call them all up on the phone. And just sit there with a pen and paper and say, right now, what are you paying for American Silver Eagles? What are you paying for 999 Pure Silver Coin Rounds? What are you paying for 1964 Prior Junk Silver? Write down the numbers. See who's paying the highest price from the top couple that are paying the highest price. They're going to give you a price that's based on today's current spot price. It's not going to be today's current spot price because they want to buy at one level and sell at another. It's called a profit. They're not in business so you can get cash. They're in business so they can make money. It's important that we understand that. That will tell you, and you can look at the spot price and say, basically based on that spot price, if it goes up or down, this is about what percentage I can expect in my local market where I can quickly go change the money in. The entire point of saving things like silver and gold is you don't have to go out on Craigslist and go, somebody buy my silver. There's there's dealerships everywhere. You just go in and go, here, what are you paying for today? And they pay you for it. Now, if you buy it today, and you bought it by some magic you know shipping method where it showed up at your house fifteen seconds after you bought it from an online retailer and you took it to a place like that and sold it you 're going to lose money why so that the dealer can make a profit that 's the metals industry there 's no real way around it. sometimes you can pick stuff up under spot by buying on eBay or something like that but it 's generally tough so but it absolutely you can now let 's talk about this fallacy this this complete Fallacy that by converting our dollars into silver or gold, we're gonna we're like take away from the Fed. As long as you have income, you're earning money in dollars. As long as you're earning money in dollars, you're spending dollars to buy the silver. As long as you're spending dollars to buy the silver, you're, you're completing the entire flow of the money. Just because you're holding silver doesn't change a damn thing. So this 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 animosity toward the Fed, trust me, I understand it. There's no one that wants those bastards gone more than me. No one. But I also understand it is the current system and there's certain ways we live outside of the system there's certain ways we live within the system and there's certain ways that we use the system I'm going to have to do a show, not this week because I'm away but next week on China and what China, I, I've been saying it I've been saying it, I've been saying it finally the rest of the media is like, holy crap look at China, they're rising up out of the, the east and they're, they're, they're becoming the world superpower no shit, really? I mean, I've been, again, I've been saying that for two and a half years now but some of the things that, they're, that they've been doing and I said, this is the moves they're making What's China doing? Is China going, now the fiat currency's bad, now they're going, oh, how can we use the fiat currency? So what does China do? China takes all the fiat currency that they can get their hands on. They print their own. They buy the U.S. debt. They export their crap. They keep making more and more paper money. They peg their money to our dollar. They play the Monopoly game. And then they do what winners of Monopoly do. They buy real property. China takes the fiat currency and converts it into copper mines in Africa, silver mines in Africa. Dams, highways, infrastructure, petroleum reserves, coal mines, bridges, tunnels. Alright? They go out and they buy contracts on food today. And they hedge against tomorrow's inflation. They go to a small nation that has a large export of rice. It says, whatever rice you don't use, 100% of your exports we will buy for the next five years. How much do you want? And they convert it to the asset. And then they feed their people with it, which keeps their factories running, which keeps exporting their crap, which keeps the money coming in, so they buy another copper mine in Africa, or they build another bridge, or they build another dam that generates electricity for their cities. Do you think they're going, oh, we don't want to use the fiat currency? No, they're using the hell out of the fiat currency, but they're converting it into as many assets in as many strategic areas as possible. This is what we need to emulate. In this way, we need to emulate the Chinese as individuals. Our government isn't going to do it. Our government is going to keep dealing out the pork fat because it's what the people voting for them that are still asleep and haven't woke the hell up yet want. If you think the average American wants liberty and freedom and independence and responsibility, you are delusional. Just because you do doesn't mean the average one does. There's more of us every day that are waking up and saying, let me have it. I'll stand with it. I'll take the consequences so I can reap the rewards. Most of America believes if either if the Republicans were in charge we'd all be okay. If the Democrats were in charge we'd all be okay. They're divided on that left-right paradigm, or worse, they're completely ambivalent to either one. They're like, oh hello, right? They're they're freaking just mind-numbingly stupid. And we've got that is our that is 80 percent of the country or more, maybe 90. If you don't believe it, go to the average city and just start pulling people over and asking them, hey, do you know, wh- wh- what's the Federal Reserve all about? Oh, well, they make our money. Uh, they're part of government. They don't have any idea. I'm not putting them down. I'm just saying that's where they are. So if that's where the majority is right now, that's where the system will remain for right now. So instead of just like having this like this spiteful nature, I don't want to use their money you use the hell out of their money. You convert it to land. You convert it to food. You convert it to silver. You convert it to gold. You convert it to systems that provide for you. You work your ass off in the system right now. And you take every stinking scrap you can take from it. And you convert it into something that will produce for you for the rest of your lives. Understand what most Americans do. They go their whole life in that gerbil wheel. Working for the system. And they buy everything they need a la carte. They buy their electricity for this month. They buy their food for this week. They buy their gas for this week. They buy tires when the ones on their car wear out. Every single need they have, they buy a la carte. As needed only. When they retire, they hope that they die before whatever they've saved. And whatever they're handed runs out. And then they continue from that point forward to purchase all their needs a la carte based on the checks that they can either withdraw or receive every month. What I'm telling you to do is spend the money now, but don't just put it all in silver. Don't put it all in gold. One egg in your basket is going to get cracked. Two eggs in your basket, they're probably going to get cracked. And when they're cracked, you're screwed. So if the things flip and we have deflation instead of inflation, you can lose your legs in gold and silver. So you've got to spread the risk. So invest in your own infrastructure, invest in your own home, invest in your own needs, emulate what China is doing at the individual level. But yes, if you buy silver, you can sell it like that. There's millions of places. Don't think you can't do it. Don't think it's hard to do. Pick the phone book up or go online, start calling places, ask, do you buy? Here's what I'm looking to sell. What do you pay? Look at the spot price, find the, 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 the companies or the, the company or group of companies that pay the best relative. You're going to find they're already going to be so close it's not going to matter. The one that pays a little bit more might cost you enough in gas to go to the one that's close to you and sell. Big thing with selling in the coming year unless they make a change. Try to always sell less than 500 I think it's $600 is what they came up with. But try to sell under $500 at a time if you can. Avoid any kind of tax forms. Go to two locations. Sell 400 here and 400 there if you need $800. Keep the money under the table if you can. I'm not supposed to say that, but that's how I really feel. So it's what I'm going to tell you. Let's go ahead and take another question. Here's a question. Somebody that probably wants me to give them an answer they're not going to get again. Uh, this is from, doesn't say who it's from. P States is, P States of Mind is the uh, thing in the email. So we'll call them P States. P States says, I have two outstanding loans against my 401k, totaling around $14,000. One is 8k and the other is 6k. Uh, I will have enough money to pay them off and fool this March. The only other debt I have is a home, which I can't sell for what I owe. Join the club. I have very little cash if I use this to pay off my 401k debt. My question is, should I pay these loans off effectively to myself or keep the other half in cash, take the other half to purchase three to five acres of some rural land here in Maine? Note, the loans represent about 600 a month in payments out of my paycheck. What I'm planning on doing is paying the loans off, then save 600 a month for a year and purchase three to five acres outright in the spring of 2012. But since I have very little cash assets, I was thinking about keeping some cash on hand in the event this economy keeps tanking which I, too, share your opinion of a false recovery. Thanks, Jack. Well, here's the thing. If you pay the loan back to yourself, all your money goes back into your own account, and if some emergency should come up, like the devil rises in Maine and starts pitchforking children, and you need to buy a pitchfork shield for your children, or whatever the emergency is. I'm being ridiculous to make a point. You can always go back to your 401k and borrow the money again or take it as a withdrawal and pay the penalties. All right? Either way, you can go back to the well and get the money back out. If you keep the money out and you don't make the repayment because you lose your job or something like that, then you're going to be stuck and you're going to not pay the loan on time and you're going to pay the interest and penalties, which you're not going to have because you've already spent the money in the middle of the emergency and they're going to want 10% plus the tax withholding. Hmm. Seems like paying the loan back would give you the option to take the money back out if you had to, but wouldn't restrict you the way not paying the money back would. Next, on the false recovery. If I'm right, and God forbid I think I am, then in late 2012 or early 2012 or somewhere around there, the price of land in Maine should continue to go down! Right? Until everybody catches on that getting the hell out is the best option... And, and and this this country is so asleep, that's for a while yet. The prices of land everywhere is going to continue to decline. Even when it doesn't really decline, what I mean is the asking price doesn't go down, the seller becomes more desperate. So that piece of land that a guy wanted $40,000 for, that he still has listed at $40,000, when you walk in and go twenty dollars cash, he's a lot more likely to go, huh, maybe I need to take it. Or look, I can't do that, but I need to get my ass out from under this. How about thirty dollars and you go, deal, because you would have paid thirty-five, And you went way low on what you're willing to pay. So there's room for the counteroffer. So as the economy continues to erode, the price of land continues to drop. The only thing that throws a kink in the works here is you losing your job. But if you lose your job with the outstanding loan of the 401k, it's an even bigger problem. Remember, if you pay it back, you can always go get it again. You can always borrow from it again. You can always take the distribution from it and pay the penalties. It's like putting money in a savings account. It's just a different type of savings account. Let me put it to you another way. If you had no money, would you take a loan to buy the property? And you would know if you're buying a house, I'd say, go ahead. Go ahead. Buy a house, that's fine. To buy property without a house, you don't take a loan. For property without the home... It's more difficult to sell and has an expense to change a new property with a home. You buy the land and then finance construction, I that's pretty much the same thing as buying a house. You buy land and finance construction with one loan, maybe, if you can afford it and everything's right and you've got enough money down and all that good stuff to put equity in right from the beginning. Um, but you buy the property for a mortgage, I don't think so. I just don't think it's a smart way to leverage that at all. So... There you go. Pay the debt back to yourself. Put this, the thing to zero. Start saving the 600 a month, and here's what's going to happen. All of a sudden, instead of saving 600 a month, you're going to figure out how to save 700 a month. It always happens. Don't ask me to explain it. I don't understand it. I'm telling you that when I did it, that's what happened. I'm telling you when everybody else that I know ever did this, when they pushed the, 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 the slate to zero other than the mortgage... And they start trying to save money. They start finding money to save they didn't know existed. They start going, I don't really need that. I can cut this. Look at that. And all of a sudden, they just start cramming that money in there. You won't believe where you'll be a year and a half from now if you take this approach and start putting that money to use for you outside of the 401k. Because really, it's just what you're doing. You're exchanging one for the other over a year. Instead of having the the, the money outside and the debt inside You're putting the debt away and building the money on the outside. Do it. Get it done. Keep on rocking. Here's another one. This comes from, let's see, T. No name with this one again, just T uh, is what the email address says. Um, This is a BBC News, and it's in a lot of other places, and a ton of you guys have sent me this, so I'm going to talk about it, of course, today. And it's the world of genetic modification will not leave us alone. So, you know, this has been my big problem from day one with this, folks. When when, Back when I started talking about this, pretty much genetic modifications was uh, corn and soybean and canola. And those were the big three, and they still are the big three. But we weren't genetically modifying a lot of other things like fish and poultry and pigs and all these other things that we're doing now. And I said my problem, big problem despite all the damage that the, the the Monsanto crap was doing, is that they once this can was open, they would never close it. And some people thought, you know, oh you're the guy that is pessimistic towards science, but I think science is wonderful when used the right way. Screwing with the DNA uh the DNA chain and modifying life and not really knowing what we're doing while we're doing it, we don't really know what the consequences are, and then consuming the results eh, that that I think is, is dumb. That's the ones where I go, do you guys never watch science fiction movies? Really? Do you not know what you're doing here? And maybe they don't. So what have they done now? Here's the headline. Can't make it up because no one would have believed it five years ago. Today, everybody's like, oh, of course. World's first flu-resistant GM chickens created. Let me read some of this to you. Professor Helen Sang. Not only can we use this approach to tackle bird flu, but other diseases. UK scientists have created the world's first genetically modified chickens that do not spread bird flu. Writing in a science journal, the team says their work demonstrates it's possible to create a variety of GM farm animals resistant to viral diseases. The research team inserted an artificial gene into chickens. This introduces a tiny part of the bird flu virus into the chicken's cell. The birds become infected, but render the virus virus harmless to other poultry. The team believes the genetic modification they have introduced is harmless to the chickens and to people who might eat the birds. I'm glad they, they, they believe it. Notice they said they haven't proven it. They believe it. These birds become infected but render the virus harmful to other poultry. Think about what that means. Professor Helen Sang of Edinburgh University told BBC News, the genetic modification is potentially a much better way of protecting against diseases than vaccination because the GM technique works even if the virus mutates. It will protect the whole flock from the avian influenza infection. This is really exciting because the bird flu is a real challenge to the poultry production and if it were introduced to poultry breeding it would protect our large-scale production flocks from avian influenza," said Professor Sang. "Broad protection. The researchers say that in principle, the technique can be used to protect any farm animal from any disease. The eventual aim is to develop animals that are completely resistant to viral diseases." <laughs> According to co-author Dr. Lawrence Tiley from the University of Cambridge, agricultural selective breeding has made huge improvements on productivity of many livestock, but it's reaching the point where it's now limited. And God forbid we have limits, folks. And the GM techniques allow you to introduce novel genes that don't exist in nature, but are based on our detailed knowledge of molecular molecular biology of viruses. We can specifically target these viruses to prevent them from replicating. The researchers say they think the technology has the potential to boost food production and reduce costs. There's going to be a real problem in feeding the world. See, it's always about feeding the children. The the people in Africa are still going to starve, and in other parts of the world, in Haiti and whatnot, they're still going to starve. They're still going to pray to God for a bowl of gruel, but this is going to save them, and this is why we're supposed to allow these people to do this crap. Um, let's get going, says Professor Sang. As the demand for animal products increases, it's going to get increasingly expensive, and we're looking at different ways to tackle that problem. GM techniques could also have benefits for human health, according to... There it is. Huh? I knew it was coming. Uh, GM techniques could also have benefits for human health, according to Professor Sang. If few animals are carrying viruses, there's a lower chance of them mutating in a form that would be deadly to humans and so create a pandemic. Cautious welcome, but the news is received with cautious welcome from upholstery industry. Peter Bradnick of the British Poultry Council said more research was needed to assess the long-term impact on farm animals before food product producers would even consider using the technology. Well, he sounds like a quack. You can read the rest of the article yourself. I'll provide a link in to today's show notes. Let me tell you what they're going to do next. Genetically modified human beings. Well, I mean, if we can genetically modify a chicken so that it is resistant to the flu, and we don't have to keep giving the chicken injections, and then and the modification will handle the flu even if it mutates. Why don't we genetically modify our children? We'll make them stop illness before it starts. Maybe we'll create them with active immune systems that go out and kill the pathogen before it even gets into their body. Sound like science fiction? It's not a big leap from where these guys are at here. Let me read this to you again, this one line. These birds become infected, but render the virus harmless to other poultry. The chicken gets infected, and then it renders the virus. I don't, it doesn't really explain how that happens. But some of you who are fans of Star Trek The Next Generation will go, this sounds like an episode that was cooked up in the mind. Gene Roddenberry, where these children were the only people left alive on a planet, where these scientists had genetically modified them, and all the other people there died. And when the lady went down to try to help them, she got really sick and almost died. And why? Because she had a mild flu. And their immune systems went out and attacked the flu. Just saying, I know that's a stretch from where we're at, but can anybody doubt that if we're going to start genetically modifying a chicken, and a pig, and everything else... And that we're going to put those chickens and pigs and salmon. Right now we have genetically modified uh, chicken, genetically modified salmon. That's going to be on your store shelves soon, uh, less than two years now. Uh, Genetically modified pigs. So once we've done all these great things and the pig lives and the chicken lives, do do you think they're going to not say, look, we could do this stuff with human beings next? And what are the long-term effects? Well, we'll know in 50 years, folks. That's when we'll know. As for me, uh, I'm going to eat chicken that's not been genetically modified. It's bad enough what they do to it already. And then here's the unspoken thing. How much avian flu do chicken farmers in Tennessee really have to worry about right now? Just saying. How many chicken farms in Tennessee or Kentucky or... Texas, or Alabama, or Arkansas, or Pennsylvania, or Ohio, or whatever, how many of them have had, have wiped out their entire flock of chickens, it takes only 40 days to grow, by the way, because of avian flu? doo 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 there's Jeopardy music, you know, zero, none! This problem exists in Asia, where their, their, their practices with their poultry are even worse than ours. Bigger... How much danger is there in avian flu pandemic being spread by chickens that are grown organically and free range? Do 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 do. What is that? Zero? Or almost none? How much risk is there to genetically modifying a chicken so that it attacks disease and makes it impermeable to the disease, and then eating that chicken? I don't know, but I would stand to believe that it's a bigger risk than. Just letting our chickens behave like chickens. The way that humanity has for, oh, I don't know, about 8,000 years we've been working with chickens with very little problems until we cram them into a place where they are shoulder to shoulder with their beaks burned off. Or in living conditions where the chickens run around in the mud and sleep in the house and children sleep with chickens in their bed. I mean, other than that, we've done pretty well with the chicken. Maybe we don't need to be genetically modifying the damn things. I'm just saying. Let's go ahead and take another one. Lots of debt questions today. Lots of people want me in one way or another blessed debt. It ain't going to happen. Let's take this one. Uh, Good question, though, from this guy. This is from Chris, and Chris says, Chris from Ohio here. I have a question for you about mortgages. There's another podcast that I listen to once in a while. I won't name names, but he does a survival show as well as some others. His main topic is about health and owning investment properties. Maybe you've heard of him. If you told me who he was, maybe I have. you can't tell me who he is, I I don't know. Uh, But he did a recent show talking about how, in the long term, it's better to keep paying on a mortgage for nearly your entire life, because apparently, in the end, you'll end up further ahead financially. I believe he was talking mainly about mortgages you would get into if you were investing in things, such as rental properties, you would buy and own yourself, and in turn, make a profit from your tenants. Do you know if this is true? Maybe it only applies to situations like the one with rental properties or other big investments. I was actually surprised to hear him say this. Uh, I think I know what your response may be to his opinion, but I would like to hear what you think anyway. I would like to know if this guy is full of it or he's actually worth his salt. Thanks a lot, Jack. Chris. Well, I'm not going to condemn the guy too much without knowing who I'm condemning. And, that with, and with only hearing kind of, let's say, the uh, the hearsay version of what he said and how he presented it, he may have presented it totally differently. Let me give you let me give him the benefit of the doubt and tell you how this this can work. If you're investing in multiple properties... Okay, And I'm going to go out, I'm going to buy a property, and the payment on that property, taxes, insurance, the whole lot, is going to be, let's say, $1,000 a month. And I can rent it for 400 and I can take 300 as cash flow and $100 and put it in an emergency fund. And that way I build an emergency fund over the time, and when they clog the toilet and I need a plumber to go undo it, I can pay for it out of the emergency fund and I can hold that property, and at the same time I'm holding that property, I can claim something against it that's a shadow expense, a depreciation expense, which means the property is, on paper, worth less every year, and I claim the depreciation as an expense, and I do that with 10 properties, then mortgaging would be the way to go, because let's say with a $10,000 payment on each, I could get 10 properties with $100,000 of cash, instead of one property with $100,000 of cash. So now if they're all flowing and everything's going and they're all rented most of the time and they're all being rented for positive cash flow and I'm depreciating them all, I can literally be making an income of $100,000 a year and paying taxes on maybe $20,000 a year. And every time a house gets to the point where the depreciation's wearing off, I can go buy another house that costs more than the house I'm getting rid of, roll the depreciation into the new house, and then start depreciating it, and I can do this on and on and on, and if I'm a professional real estate investor, I can keep doing this for years and years, building equity and flipping at the point where the depreciation no longer pays off for expense, and doing the rollover uh, to the next property, this is something you're going to want to bring a, you know, a, a property attorney, a real estate attorney in to make sure it's done and filed right and make sure both properties are set up so they qualify. It's called a 1031 rollover. In that scenario, you can carry debt on multiple properties for your almost your entire life. And if everything works, you can become a very wealthy individual. Well, you can also sit on the outside of the roulette wheel constantly betting on black. And if black comes up more that day than red or green, you're going to make a lot of money. But it has its limits and it has its risks. I'm not even saying it's bad, but it's for the—it's not for the person that's going to have one or two properties and that's it, and they just want to have a little bit of rental income and build some equity. No, no, those people are going to get burned. This is for a full-time professional that's probably going to get his ass kicked for his first three to four years in business, and he can afford to lose money for three to four years. And he can afford to go into debt for three or four years without having a, a, a somebody that has a big bankroll of cash and is going to try to leverage as best they can and those are going to take some losses going in while they learn the hard nuts and bolts of the game. And that's it. And all those guys selling you this bullshit on late night TV, they'll tell you the same thing I will, except they'll tell you, you can do it too, it'll be easy. There's 20 ways in my course to teach you how to buy land or property with no money down. Re- method number 1, borrow it from Uncle Joe. They don't find that out till you pay him their 200 bucks. Right? So, yeah, it can't work. On a personal residence you live in, it's asinine to believe that you can take a house that you could buy for $125,000, pay it off early and maybe pay $150,000 or $170,000 for it, and come out behind, as opposed to doing it over your entire life and paying, oh, $350,000 for it. It's asinine to believe that $150,000 more can go out, and you're going to come out ahead. It's asinine to believe that after 10 years of paying on a house, if you can pay it off in 10 years instead of 30, and having 20 years of saving the entire house payment in full and investing it in things that, prepare, that protect you for the long term or investing it in cash or, or any investment that's a solid, safe investment. 20 years of that house payment going into investments for yourself isn't better than 20 years of sending it to the bank. And getting the, the, the tax deduction for your personal residence on your mortgage expense is nice to have because you're stuck with the expense. Seriously. Once you've got the expense gone, it's just stupid to even, even concern yourself with it. Uh, anybody that pays off your home and says, you know what? I used to get a tax deduction for my mortgage expense, and now I don't anymore, and I think I need a mortgage so I can get my tax deduction. i got a better idea for you. World will create a contract between me and you. I'll be your consultant. You tell me how much you were paying in mortgage expenses, and I'll bill you that amount. You send it to me, and I'll tell you, that's my consulting. Send me your money. And then I'll pay the taxes on it. You can deduct it as an expense. I'll make that deal with anybody that wants it. And anybody listening to that goes, that's stupid, why would I do that? You're doing the same thing. And you're doing it worse, because at least in my way, it doesn't carry debt. Your way, it costs you that much money, plus the additional principal. Plus you're carrying the debt. Plus you're compounding it for 30 years. No. No. No, 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 this is the wrong answer unless you are the large-scale multi-property investor and you're doing it professionally and a lot of those guys that really know what they're doing still get wiped out. Just saying. That's my thoughts on it. Let's go take another one. Next one here comes from Maggie. Maggie says, what are your thoughts on this? And the headline is, U.S. Mint reports unprecedented buying spree of physical silver. It's an article on Zero Hedge. Let me read a bit of it to you. Three days ago, we noted that in just the first week of January, the U.S. Mint had sold 2,221,000 ounces of silver, a number which, if run-related, would be an absolute all-time monthly record. A quick glance at the tally today showed that something very scary is going on. In the subsequent three days, the number has surged by 50% and has hit 3.4 million ounces of silver. In just the first 12 days of the month, We have already surpassed the total monthly sales of nine separate months of 2010. And some additional observations on what is becoming a physical buying frenzy from CoinNews.net. An increase in 2010 proof silver eagles and record approaching 2011 silver bullion eagles are the most interesting aspects of the latest U.S. mint sales report. The Proof Eagles have been seeing two weekly adjustments since they sold out in late December. The latest brings them up to 3644 to 860000 which would seem like a natural stopping point. Collectors will have to wait until July time frame for the 2011 Silver Proof Eagles to make their appearance according to the U.S. Mint. Um, I'm going to leave it there, and I'm going to give you some thoughts on it. Number one, it does show... The interest in silver is way, way up and that more and more people are making silver part of their asset portfolio. I think that is a good thing, especially under the current economic circumstances. Two, it shows that silver's in a boom. And this is why I tell you to use caution. I'm not saying not to buy any silver at all anymore. I'm saying to think about your investments right now with silver and gold. What is every bust preceded by? A boom. You never hear, well, this commodity sucked and then it tanked, right? That's not how it works, you know? Oil didn't bust when it was trading for $10 a barrel. If it went down like the eight people went, whatever. Oil tanked after it went to $144 a barrel. The stock market didn't go level for 10 years and then tank. It built. And it built over three or four years really high. Then it busted. Every bust. Every bust. preceded by a boom. Not every boom ha- ends in a bust short term. Sooner or later, <laughs> sooner or later, every boom busts. It's a matter of how and why. And it's, is, and the other thing we have to look at as a metal investor is, is silver booming or is it correcting upward? And those are two different things. Booming is it, the commodity price takes off and if it booms long enough, it shoots past its real value. Well, I feel like silver's been suppressed for a long time, and as gold ran away, silver just lagged behind. And I've always said this. Either gold's too high, and silver's a safer play, because it hasn't gone up too much yet, or or gold is where it belongs or close to it, and the delta's excessive, and silver has to come up to correct. Said that two years ago. Exactly that way. It's the way I've thought about silver for years, but especially in the last four or five years. So, I'm not... Poo-pooing silver, I'm just saying use caution. Don't throw all your money in silver. Look at silver as a long term investment right now. Look at it as an inflation hedge. Long term, it's probably safe. You could see some major correction. We've already seen some correction off the all-time high. Uh, the all-time recent last ten year high, right? It was up over thirty bucks. Now it's down to like twenty-eight. That's that's a significant drop. You know, it's two bucks. That's you know, it's not anything that's gonna bust you, but hey, I mean with there's already a delta between buy and sell, you know, be careful with it. But I'm also going to give you what I think might be misleading about this. Silver's white hot right now. No pun intended there with the white color of the metal. But it is, it's white hot. Silver in everything is hot right now with collectors. The new silver quarters, the, you know, the, the, the new ones, they did the states and now they're doing national parks and stuff like that, the silver versions of them. Silver proof this, silver proof that. Uh, collectors, it's, it's blowing up. And the higher silver goes, the more it magnifies the collector value. So, the people that are dumb, in my opinion, and buy things like MS69, MS70 coins, uh, for their numismatic value, but based on the, not just the underlying value, those premiums go higher as the base metal price goes higher. Okay? So, what happens in January? Early striking. The dies are brand new. They're just strikes. So what happens in January? All the collector houses get their hands on as much as they can off the early runs, first strikes, and things like that. Then they send them to the numismatic associations and have them graded, and they know their best chance of getting the highest-grade coins for market general price is early in the year. So you're always going to see a spike in January. It looks higher than normal. It is because the demand is greater than normal. All I'm saying is use caution, because we could be seeing the indications of of, of real currency devaluation and real inflation as buyers early on safeguard themselves, or we could be seeing a boom that goes into a bust. It is a crapshoot right now. you got to play both sides of this fence. You can't go completely naked with no silver, but do not put all your assets into silver. Please don't do that stick with my recommendation of five to ten percent of your wealth please hedge the bet don't let it all ride on the table because if you get wiped out it's gonna really suck if you need that money in the next five years and you have to cash it in you know look at your silver and your gold plays right now as risk capital if it's not risk capital if it's not five-year capital you're better off holding cash right now because inflation can only do so much damage in the next year. Five years it can do a lot more damage, you need a bigger hedge. Hopefully that makes sense. I got one more today and we'll wrap up on a good Monday show. Um, here's an interesting question. Uh, it says, I thought you might find this interesting. Comes from somebody named Tyler. And it is an article on business, uh, MSNBC Business News. And this is also one that I got from a lot of people this week. A ton of people. I would bet. At least fifty people other than Tyler sent me this article. So obviously you guys want to hear about it, so I'm gonna talk about it and it's not good news. Again, MSNBC is the source. There's lots of sources for though. This is this is going everywhere right now. <clears throat> I just another one of those places where you're right and you go, God, I wish I was wrong. Global food chain stretched to the limit. Soaring prices spark fears of social unrest in the developing world. You see, the people in the third world nations that we crap on, that we economically enslave, that we force to convert their 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 croplands to grow wheat and rice and export them to pay their debt back, they're always the ones that get kicked in the nads first with this. Here we go. By John W. Scholin. Shulin? Whatever his name is. By John, senior producer of MSNBC.com. Sure, he and I don't agree on a lot of things, but I bet we agree on this one. Strained by rising demand and battered by bad weather, the global food supply chain is stretched to the limit. Sending prices soaring and sparking consumers' concerns about a repeat of food riots seen three years ago. Signs of the strain can be found from Australia to Argentina to Canada to Russia. Those don't sound like developing nations. Wait a minute, it's spreading to people just like us. Maybe we should pay attention. On Friday, Tunisia's president, now that's third world, right, fled the country after trying to quell deadly riots in the North African country by slashing prices on food staples. We are entering a danger territory. Abazulzare Abassan, chief economist at the UN Food and Agricultural Organization, said last week, aren't you glad... Aren't you glad we have people like Abdul Reza Abazan at the UN to help us with this? Don't you feel good that the United States fits the bill for 90% of what these ass clowns do, and they put this guy in charge, the chief economist at the UN Food and Agricultural Organization, the FAO? Huh? They've done such a good job of feeding people. I digress. The UN's fear is that the latest run-up in food prices could spark a repeat of deadly food riots that broke out in 2008 in Haiti, Kenya, and Somalia. The price spike was relatively short-lived, but Abbasan said the latest surge in foodstuffs may be more sustained. Situations have changed. The supply and demand structures have changed. Abbasan told the Australian Broadcasting Company last week, Certainly the kind of weather developments that we have seen make us worry a bit more uh, that it may last much longer. Are we prepared for it? Really, this is the question. See, it's always climate change. It's always global warming. Hey, you know what? Global warming and CO2 are good for crops. It's not the problem. It's not the problem. We're growing as much as we always did. There's been some crop failures. Been more about frost than warming. but And there's been some fires. Huh? Right? Fires and frost. But the big thing, and it's not in this article, I don't see it anyway. China's consuming more. Hmm. India's consuming more. Hmm. You know, when 3 billion plus people start to consume more, it takes away from the supply. I digress again. Back to the article. Prices for grains and other farm products have been rising last fall after poor harvests in Canada, which was frost; Russia, which was wildfire. They're not—they're not telling you this. I'm telling you this. The Ukraine tightened global soup food supplies because the stuff in Russia that didn't come to the Ukraine was curtailed by fire, so the Ukraine needed to keep more of their stuff internally. Again, I'm telling you this—not the article. More recently, hot, dry weather in South America has cut production in Argentina, a major soybean exporter. Huh? Soybeans. How many soybeans do you eat? This month's flooding in Australia wiped out much of the country's wheat crop. It rained. Didn't get too warm, it rained. As supplies tightened prices surge. Earlier this month, the FAO said its food price index jumped thirty two percent in the second half of twenty ten, soaring past the previous record set in two thousand eight. Wait, 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 wait a minute. There is no inflation. There's no inflation in this country. My God, Ben Bernanke had to save us to try to make inflation with two billion in QE one and 660 million in QE two. Where or 660 billion <laughs> in QE two? I'm sorry, it was two trillion the first time around. I mean, wait a minute how how did food prices go up 32 percent? And, my God, we don't have any inflation. Did the food prices just go up for those people? Really? Think about this. I'm going to tell you something scary. Actually, on some levels, it's true. I'll explain that after I read more of the article. Uh, But let me go on. Um, I lost my place there because I got so angry. Uh, As supplies tight, prices surge. Earlier this month, the FEO said food price index jumped 32% in the second half of 2010, soaring past the previous record set in 2008. Prices rose again this week after the U.S. Department of Agriculture cut back its already tight estimate of grain inventories. Estimated reserves of corn were cut to about half the level of storage at the start of the 2010 harvest. Soybean reserves are at the lowest levels in three decades, the USDA estimates, in part because of heavy buying by China. Finally, we get the answer. The ratio of stocks to demand is expected to fall later this year to levels unseen since the mid-70s, said the agency. I haven't seen numbers this low that I can remember in the last 20 or 30 years, says Dennis Conley, an agricultural economist at the University of Nebraska. We are at record low stocks, so if there is any kind of glitch at all, In the U.S. weather, supplies are going to remain tighter, and we might see even higher prices. Higher oil prices are also pushing up the cost of food in two ways. First, the added shipping cost raises the delivered price of agricultural products. Higher oil prices also divert more crops like corn and soybeans to biofuel production. (laughs) Further tightening supplies for livestock feed and human consumption. Conley estimates that more than a third of the corn produced in the U.S. is now used to make ethanol. Let you read the rest of the article on your own. What does it tell us? All the promises that if we just prank and food, your food enough and genetically modified enough, we'll be able to feed the world. Bullshit. Because here's the underlying facts. We are destroying the land that we grow the food on, and we are using too much of the water we use to grow the food with, and we are completely dependent on the oil to grow the food. So the pasty white vegan who says, oh, we need less oil, and drives her little bicycle to her, her job as a barista at Starbucks and, and thinks that you're evil because you have a car, doesn't realize there's as much oil being spent to feed her her biscotti as there is to probably get you to your office every day. And we're in this trap together. And the ass clowns at the UN are not going to fix it for us. We have to feed ourselves what I've been saying for years. We have to feed ourselves. What do I think about this? I think that the United States is going to start seeing real inflation in the food supply. And I'll tell you why. The, the, the truth behind it not being that bad here yet, even though the, the commodities went up 30%. In the United States, we do not go to the market and generally buy a bag of wheat berries. Or a bag of dried soybean. Right, or a bag of dry rice. And when we do, it's a very minor part of the food that we consume. So you might go buy the rice, and if we're preppers, we might buy the wheat and and, and things like that. But in general, the average consumer, you buy a little bag of rice maybe once a month. Okay? And when you have rice, you have a huge plate of food, and the rice is a little side dish on it. Same with dried beans. All of the dried soybean, the dried other legumes, all of the stuff, these commodities, wheat and barley... All this stuff, the underlying grains, the corn, all of it that's used in the production of our food is a component. In a lot of the world, places like Tunisia where the president had to flee because they were going to cut his head off, literally cut his head off. (laughs) So he ran away. Even though he cut the price of food, they were still going to kill him. He had to run away. When you go to the market, they buy the base crop. So when wheat goes up 30%, they don't see a four percent increase in the total cost of their food. they see a 30 percent increase in the cost of their staple. And that's what causes these riots. It's not even whether or not the food's there. it's can you afford it? And when you add can you afford it to it not being there, you end up a catastrophe. And we in the civilized world, if you want to call us that, get insulated from this. We're three or four steps down the distribution chain. We have a much more varied and broad diet. But sooner or later, the steak you eat it affects the steak you eat. Because of the oil prices, and because of the feed that has to go to the animal, because we don't have gra- cattle that eat freaking grass anymore. No, we're going to genetically modify them so they can probably eat freaking corn roots next or something. Who knows what we're going to genetically modify these animals to do. But right now, they eat corn. Its primary feed for wildlife is corn. We take the corn and we use it to make ethanol, we make gas, we make gasoline that costs more energy to produce than it puts out in the name of saving the planet. This is lunacy. This is absolute lunacy. The entire planet, led by the United Nations, seems to be acting in a in a case of collected lunacy. Collective lunacy. We can't fix that yet. This thing is going to come apart at the seams. Exactly what that will look like, unlike most people in my genre. I'm not going to tell you it's going to look exactly like this, and you better go build a bunker. You know? I don't know what it's going to look like. I really don't. I know it's going to be bad. I know it's going to be massive change. I know you better be prepared for it. This is just one more example of why. Again, I'll link to this article and the other articles that I talked about today in today's show notes. Make sure you play for your chance to win the copy of Lights Out. Remember, the code word is David Crawford. Two words, first and last name of the author, in the subject line. That only in the subject line. Email to com. Your name and your shipping address in the body. And I will notify all the winners on probably Thursday, because Wednesday people will be playing as well. All five winners of the book and all ten winners of the MSB contest, I will notify on Thursday of this week from the Bug Out location through the beauty of the AT&T wireless tether that I have that allows me to access the event when I'm up there for right now. With that, I will wrap up today. Again, uh, by the time you're listening to this, I'm probably on my way. I've thought already at the Bug Out location. Uh, but you will have shows for at least uh, Wednesday and Thursday this week. I'll try to get a Friday show out for you today, uh, depending on how the uh, – actually, today, I'll be here. So I'm going to try to get out. Uh, again, I will get out a show for you guys on Thursday. I'll try to get one out for Friday as well. Uh, with that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life. Sometimes get tough. Or we'll even if they don't you seen our food these days you know it's on our TVs sometimes we forget we are what we eat I don't know the answer it's like there's nothing I can do.